theocentric purpose. Their purpose is to show God at work in his creation and among his people. The narratives glorify him. There we go. Help us to understand and appreciate him and give us a picture of his providence and protection. Isn't that good? Um, A striking feature of all the historical books proper is that they emphasize the activity of the Lord in bringing about his divine purpose. He punishes those who disobey him and blesses those who worship him. If people pray to him and trust in him, their enemies are virtually impotent. What the prophets preach happens. What Yahweh promises is fulfilled. All right. Good stuff. I love this. So those are the kinds of things that we want to be sure to bear in mind as we're reading stories. Okay. So chapters 18 to 20 are lesson today um, are, are part of a the, the last three chapters of a of a of a huge section of second Samuel that Davis uh, Dale Dale Ralph Davis calls a servant under God's rod they, it comprises chapters 7 through 20 uh, sorry 9 through 20 the section is framed by the summary of the officials of David's kingdom. So that's how we can block that off is this huge section. I'm just going to read them so that you can hear the interesting thing. 2 Samuel 8, 15 to 18. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was recorder and Zadok the son of Ahitub and Ahimelech the son of Abiathar were priests and Sariah was secretary and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites and David's sons were priests. And you read for this week this conclusion. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor new element and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was the recorder and Shiva was secretary and Zadok and Abiathar were priests and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest no sons of David we want to be sure to recall Nathan's prophecy as Joyce did in the passage I read in 12 10 to 12 because it is the guiding principle behind the writer's choice of events characters and dialogue to include in this story. Here it is. Now, therefore, Nathan says, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun because we've only had one lesson in the past four weeks and we missed the very important one altogether where we actually meet Absalom I'm just going to start there because there are so many things we need to hear and know to really make sense of our lesson today right so Absalom is David's third son and he is beautiful 
right? His name means Father of Peace. So Absalom has a beautiful sister. The eldest brother, Amnon, desires her. So he takes her and rapes her, violates her. And Absalom, we learn, immediately starts plotting to murder him, to kill him, to do away with him, to get revenge. Right? After two years, he does so. He sends his servant to kill Amnon. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Absalom flees to his Gentile father, grandfather, and remains there for three years. Chapter 14. Now Joab knows that David's heart is longing for his son Absalom. So he decides to hire this wise woman. Well, this woman, I guess she ends up being sort of wise, all right, um, to manipulate David into bringing Absalom back, right? I guess he's thinking he'll get in good with the king or something like that, right? So this woman comes to David, tells him a story, says, again, uh, you're the man. And um, so David ends up um, relenting, calls for Joab, Joab falls on his face to the ground and pays homage and bless the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. thought that was very interesting. And then we have this description of Absalom as this physically beautiful man with awesome hair. And I think there's a reason the writer includes that detail. After returning to Jerusalem, he seemingly remains under house arrest for two full years, it says. Then he tries twice through Joab to get an audience with the king. Joab doesn't, he ignores him. So Absalom sends his servants to set Joab's fields on fire, which wakes up Joab. And he says, okay, I will get you an audience with the king, right? Um, Absalom comes in and bows before the king who kisses him. No dialogue, no reconciliation, no discussion about what happened. It's just there. Chapter 15 begins the last major subsection of this larger section, and I gave you the handout. That is how Davis kind of um, outlines it. Uh, Well, I thought I had it. There it is, there it is. No. Where is it? Sorry, I thought I had it to look at, to look at it with you. But anyway, he kind of, he kind of, um, I guess I put it in the wrong place. I don't know. Anyway, thank you. So you can look at that. He kind of, he lines it out for you, kind of that chiastic structure, which the Hebrews, Hebrew writers Like revolt, exile, Absalom has a decision, conflict, news, David has a decision, David's return, and revolt. So that's the frame of this um, big section here. So, for four years, Absalom steals the hearts of the men of Israel, and then he asks permission of the king to go to Hebron 
where David happened to be anointed king over all Israel in chapter 5, to sacrifice to the Lord, to pay a vow that he had vowed while he was in his self-imposed exile in Geshur. Then he sends messengers out to the country to blow trumpets and announce himself as king over the land of Israel. And his followers swell in number. This is the fulfillment of another aspect of Nathan's prophecy. 2 Samuel 12, 11, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. David then flees Jerusalem with all of his family and servants, save the ten concubines who were left behind to take care of the household. As he's leaving at the last house in Jerusalem, he's met by the Gentile, Ittai the Gittite, who reminded me of Ruth, wherever you go, I will go. Your God will be my God, a faithful and loyal and humble servant. He becomes the third commander of uh, David's army after Joab and Abishai. And then the priests of Abiathar and Zadok show up with the ark, and David sends them back. No, you know, if God, he, David tells them, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David, once again, submissive to the Lord's will and humble. All right? So then he leaves the city and he heads up the Mount of Olives in deep mourning, reminding us of another king who is in deep mourning on the Mount of Olives one day later. When he learns of the betrayal of his counselor Ahithophel, he prays for the first time. O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This is also the last time in these chapters. All right. As he reaches the summit, David is met by his friend Hushai, whom he commands to stay behind, that he could be more useful to him if he stays. And then he asks him to get in with Absalom and then to set up a spy network to alert David, right, to what's going on, right? Chapter 16, David passes beyond the summit of the Mount of Olives. He's met by Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, who's bringing donkeys and supplies. When David asks about Mephibosheth, Ziba says he's staying in Jerusalem in hopes of taking back the kingdom of Saul. So then David gives Mephibosheth all of his master's property. As David continues on the journey eastward towards the Jordan, he is met by the Benjamite Shimei, who curses him. Abishai, Joab's brother, wants to execute him. Surprise, surprise, then and there. And David rebukes him, saying that the Lord has told him to do it. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good. For his cursing today. Then Absalom arrives in Jerusalem, as do Ahithophel and Hushai. Hushai declares his loyalty to Absalom, and then Absalom turns to the men for counsel. Ahithophel counsels Absalom to pitch a tent. This first piece of advice is to pitch a tent on the roof of David's house and have sex with the concubines in the sight of all Israel, which he then does fulfilling another part of Nathan's prophecy. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them 
to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do it in the, will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Then, 17, Ahithophel gives more counsel to take 12,000 men and go now, tonight, and get David and David alone. Absalom, for some reason, asks for Hushai's counsel and prefers it, although it turns out to be Absalom's undoing. And this was because, another key verse, 1714b, the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Hushai and his relay team then get word to David through the priest's sons Ahimaaz and Jonathan to flee across the Jordan to safety. Ahithophel, Judas, commits suicide. David crosses the Jordan and stops in the city of Mahanaim where Saul's son Ishbosheth was crowned king by Abner. Absalom appoints his cousin Amasa to be the commander of his forces. While David is in Mahanaim, he's visited by Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, probably someone upon whom David had given favor after defeating them. Makir, the son of Amiel of Lodabar, the man who sheltered Mephibosheth, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, probably a Jew. Remember, there were two and a half tribes that lived on the east side of the Jordan River. A faithful Jew bringing David supplies all of these bringing David supplies. And finally, we get to our lesson. Sorry, I'm, they took down the clock, so I'm going to have to look at mine here. All right, get to our lesson. So I hope as I went through again, if you didn't have a chance to go back through the previous chapters, you were reminded of some things. So verses uh, one in verses 1 to 8, the battle is on. David's men convince him to stay behind and be safe so that he would be alone which tells us again that Ahithophel's advice was right. But God had caused Absalom to reject it and to go with Hushai's counsel. Right? David, in the hearing of all of his men, orders his commanders to deal gently with Absalom, although we know that God had determined to do him harm. The battle takes place in the forest, which devoured more people that day than the sword including Absalom. God is using his creation to do his bidding. Absalom gets his head caught in a tree, it says, and his mule, the ride of royal sons, takes off, leaving him hanging. So some commentators don't really know what to do with that. Some say, no, it was really, it was really his head kind of caught in the branches. And others say, well, it, you know, it was, his, it was his hair because of the, you know, the reference to the hair. I'm guessing, oh, sorry, I'm guessing that if it was his head, he could have just taken his arms and gone, uh, and pulled himself out. But if his hair is all entangled in the branches, he's stuck, kind of, and he's flailing around, right? And yes, I think the Lord used his source of pride as his undoing. The next scene reveals a lot about Joab's character. We have a contrasting character, a regular soldier who reports having seen Absalom. Joab says, what, you didn't kill him? He's like, no, in your hearing, we, heard, we all heard 
The king commanded us not to do him harm. You know, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do it. Well, I would have rewarded you with silver and whatever else he said. I can't remember. I don't have it here. Right. And he's like, I, I don't care. I wouldn't have taken it. The king gave an order. And Joab's like, I'm done with this. And he goes and finds Absalom, stabs him with the javelins. His armor bearers pitch in, I think, so that nobody knows that it was Joab to save his own behind, right? And then he's taken down and thrown in a pit and covered with stone. The man cursed by hanging on a tree from Deuteronomy 21 is given an ignominious death, burial, rather, of just being covered over with stones, no marker. Right? So, God's purpose to bring harm to Absalom, the traitor, the Antichrist, who raised himself against the Lord's anointed, is fulfilled. Notice, then, how long the narrator drags out the notification to David of Absalom's death 14 agonizing verses. Here's the structure if you want to write it down, maybe on the back of there. The, the messengers are dispatched. Did y'all talk in, in your groups about what the back and forth was with, with Ahimaaz and Joab? And you didn't, you get, didn't get to that. Um, Joab probably just did not want Ahimaaz to get in trouble with David because he was bringing bad news. Either that or he knew that Ahimaaz didn't really know the whole truth, and Joab wanted David to know the whole truth. So he sent the Cushite, right? Then David has to wait. He's waiting, waiting, waiting between the gates with a lone watch, a watchman in the tower, right? And then finally the, the report gets dragged out again and again, right? This is... Um, I think just helping us to feel David's grief and really get into the, the story there. And then we see David's lament when he, when he hears the word, when he gets the news. And look, this is what I found. I, I found an awesome lecture by Dr. James Dennison of Northwestern Theological Seminary. He lines this up like this. My son, my son, Absalom. Absalom, my son, my son. My son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. A downward step into the pit of grief and despair. All right. All right. Um, did you talk about David's grief, hopefully, a lot? Because we don't, we're just kind of running out of time. Um, it's totally totally understandable i've lost a child i i know that it's the most horrible thing that you can go through but i think maybe even this next thing shows us that david's grief had turned idolatrous or even maybe his love for his son was idolatrous right it was just he, he was just in the pit of despair over this wicked son who was rebellious against the Lord and unrepentant, right? So, um, verse 33 of 18, O Absalom, my son, my son, is a frame for the next few verses. Joab and the troops, they're, 
they're in shock, they're ashamed, they're grieving, that the, the king is grieving. They haven't been congratulated, they haven't been thanked, right? They go in shame to their homes, and then, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, again, right? By the way, shoot, I forgot about this. I got you some maps. <laughs> uh, any ideas? <laughs> there, okay. Um, just so that you can... Do you need them all out? Yeah. Just, just so that you can see what, what has happened. David has gone from Jerusalem here to Bahurim probably and then crosses over to Mahanaim, right? And then... Go, go. Ah, death of Absalom here in the forests of Ephraim, where the men come from, Lodabar, where Barzillai comes from, da 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 da, so across the Jordan there in the center. Right? And then this one shows the supposed tracks of the messengers. Ahimaaz goes around and the Kushite goes through the forest. I don't know if that helps or not, but there's, there's that. Um, okay. Next, we have the narrator. Of course, we have Joab having to you know, go to, go to David and rebuke him and shake him out of his funk and act like a king, right? Um, then the narrator shows us the tribal bickering that's going on between the ten tribes of Israel who want to get back on the king's good side since their pretender is dead and David's tribe of Judah. This is a foreboding of the strife that will ultimately tear the nation apart after Solomon's reign, which was, this, this was written at the end sometime of Solomon's reign, this book. David then heads back west to cross the Jordan and return to Jerusalem. But before he gets there, he's met by Shimei, Ziba, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. These are mirroring us back to chapters 15 and 16. When David is on the Mount of Olives, right? And all of that. Okay, so first it, it starts with Hushai is the first to meet him when he gets to the Mount of Olives, the loyal character. And he, David sends him back, right? Then he's next encountered as he crosses over the summit. He's, he, he's met by Ziba, who has apparently stolen Mephibosheth's donkey so that he couldn't go with the king, right? And then Shimei, the cursor. So a descending order of loyalty, sinfulness, wickedness, right? And now we're seeing it come back. First to meet David. Hi, David, King. Remember, just can you just forget about that cursing stuff? Sorry, uh, I've sinned. 
Did anybody remember Saul saying that to Samuel? I've sinned. We're supposed to remember that. Was Saul's repentance genuine? No. Is Shimei, Shimei's repentance genuine? No. He's a lying, conniving chameleon doing what is necessary to save his hide. Then Ziba comes with him, right? And then Mephibosheth's come, kind of Mephibosheth comes mirroring himself here, right? And then he mirrors Ziba, revealing Ziba's character to us. How do we know that Mephibosheth is true? His speech is framed with shalom and shalom. And it's translated in the ESV in safety, I think, and safety, safety, safety. In Hebrew, it's shalom and shalom. So we know that Mephibosheth is a faithful and true follower of the king. And Ziba is a liar, right? And then we have the the parallel here of of Hushai Barzillai, right? Again, the faithful and true follower, right? All right, let's see. We're running out of time here. David crosses over to Gilgal, where he is met by Judah and some of Israel. Gilgal, we've seen many times before, when Israel first crossed the Jordan, led by Joshua. They had a a ceremony at Gilgal. When Samuel reaffirmed the monarchy under Saul, they did it in Gilgal. And now in Gilgal, David is reaffirming God's kingdom, the monarchy, right? All right, then David replaces Joab with Amasa. He knows Joab. He knows what he's done, and so he gets replaced. Then chapter 20, as David is getting back to Jerusalem, another revolt. But Sheba just doesn't have the charisma that Absalom has or the power or the influence and his rebellion amounts to his own tribe, I think, right? Then there's that little interlude about the concubines. Did you talk about that? Something had to be done because of the son's incestuous relationship with the concubines. David couldn't just pretend like it didn't happen. He had to do something, and these women are victims of David's sin again, all right? Then verse 4 and verse 22 frame the next little section. King is the first word in verse 4. The king sends Amasa to get tribes, to go get, to go get Sheba. And then at the end, Joab returns to the king. And that tells us that the kingdom remains standing, although somewhat shaken, right? So then we learn about Joab again, the murderer with the Judas kiss, kills his cousin Amasa. And then even though David sent Abishai after Amasa, who didn't come back in three days, Joab is there. It's Joab's men, and Joab is back in control, right? Then he sieges, he chases him all the way up. Sorry, that was that map. I just no time for that. He chases him all the way up to the north of Israel. 
to that city, another wise woman, like the woman of Tekoa, right? Joab hired the other one. This one speaks to Joab, right? Um, she convinces him not to kill all of the innocent along with the guilty. I thought of Abraham's words to God. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will you kill the innocent along with the guilty? Right? And God said, no. If there are even ten innocent people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not destroy it. Right? So I thought of that. man. All right. The funny, funny thing, though, know, about that wisdom, the woman's wisdom. Um, yes, it's true she saved her town, but couldn't they have just arrested Sheba and turned him over to Joab? But no, they lopped off his head and threw it over. So, earthly wisdom, godly wisdom. I thought of James. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So David's kingdom is saved. God's kingdom is saved. And then we have the framing device again. All right, so my big takeaways. It's interesting that a couple of times as I was studying, I ran across quotes from A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which we sang on Sunday. The last words, His kingdom is forever. Right? The gates of hell cannot stand against God's kingdom. Nothing can thwart God's purposes. He can turn the king's heart, any heart, wherever he will. He can use the inanimate creation to do his bidding. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. I thought also of the words of Jesus to the woman at the well. That God is spirit. He's everywhere. He's not just in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. And he's seeking true worshipers everywhere who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So we saw here all kinds of people. Absalom. The Antichrist, a type of Antichrist. Those forces were in the world then. They're in the world now. They will culminate in a person. And they will be defeated along with Satan and all of the evil forces. Joab, seemingly faithful and loyal to King David, but really all about Joab. 
Shimei, the wicked chameleon, seeking only to save his own hide. Curse is God's anointed when he feels strong, pretentiously kowtowing when the tide turns and he feels threatened. Zeba, a lying opportunist thief. And then Mephibosheth, Barzillai, Hushai, and Ittai, the loyal, true, faithful, the content to live with the king in Shalom. I thought of Revelation at the end. 19, there's so many great praise choruses here, but listen to this one. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Let's pray. Lord God, King of the universe, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You have sent your great king to rescue your fallen people. One day you will send him to bring a total end to your enemies and to our enemies, even those of sin and death. Oh, Lord, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, whom you've given us, Make us bold and courageous to be true, faithful, loyal followers of King Jesus. Would you make us bold to proclaim this, the one true story of the world, to all those around us, so that even more worshipers can be gathered in to the ends of the earth until Jesus returns. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. We're here too now. Okay, I'll make it quick. Do you guys mind if we move around the bathroom? Um, good place.